Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there are a few things that the city of Tampa and that the Tampa Bay area are famous for. We are famous for our excellent sports teams. We are famous for uh, our wrestlers. And we are famous for our circus performers. And I'm sure that there are a lot of strange stories that can be told about wrestlers and circus performers. But I want to tell you one specifically strange story about a tightrope walker. In 1975, there was a tightrope performer who was practicing to become a part of the Ringling Brothers Circus down in Bradenton. And in a a tragedy uh, and an unfortunate turn of events, he fell 45 feet from his tightrope and had several internal uh, injuries. He had to have several surgeries to repair them. Now, this is tragic. Anytime a, a circus performer is injured, that's not a good thing. But that's not what makes this story strange. What makes this story strange is who it was that fell. His name is Philippe Petit. And a year before he was practicing there in Bradenton, he had rigged up another little high-wire event. He took it from the top floor of the under-construction World Trade Center and had a 130-foot wire stretched across to the top floor of the other building of the Twin Towers. And then he stepped out at about 8.30 in the morning and began to go back and forth across the chasm, 410 feet above the streets of Manhattan. And for 45 minutes, he was just walking back and forth across this tightrope. Never once fell, never once seemed to even wobble. He even started doing tricks where he would lie down on the line. He would do all sorts of things. And for 45 minutes, without a safety harness, he walked back and forth between the two buildings of the Twin Towers. So then, a year later, he falls during practice. Why? What happened there? Well, to ask him, he would say that because it was practice, because it wasn't a performance, because the stakes were so low, he became complacent. And that's something that we can all relate to. Uh, Whether it's because certain things in our lives are repetitive and boring, or because technology has made us lazy, speaking for myself, we all know the feeling of sleepwalking through certain tasks in our lives. Uh, There are so many things that we do without even thinking. There are so many times in our lives where we're just on autopilot. Uh, Most of us are pretty zoned out while we are driving until somebody turns the wrong way down one of the first avenues north. All of a sudden, then, we become very alert, and thankfully, um, the season where uh, the people from the state up north that we won't name specifically are starting to head home, um, it happens less during the summer for whatever reason. Boredom, repetition, apathy, all of these things are a thousand reasons why complacency creeps into our lives. And let's be honest, that's not a terrible thing. When it comes to cooking that meal that you have cooked a thousand times before, complacency is not so bad. 
But when it comes to our faith, complacency can absolutely kill our faith. Complacency is just as deadly to our faith as heresy. This morning, we're looking at the letter that Jesus writes to the church in Sardis. And and the church in Sardis did not face any known persecutions. They didn't have anybody in the church who was teaching any particular bad doctrines. And yet, Jesus' words to the church at Sardis are among his most poignant. They're among his most pointed in all of the letters in this series because complacency kills. Now, from the start, I want to acknowledge something. I know that many of you uh, come to City Church from backgrounds uh, where you were hurt by your previous church experience. And, And preaching against complacency can often be used by churches uh, to sort of forward a legalistic agenda, to drum up volunteers or giving or just arise guilt in your soul. And I want you to, I want to acknowledge that that sort of pain that some of you I know carry with you is real. But at the same time, for each one of us, here's what I want us to hear as we read Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis. I want us to hear the words not as a guilt trip, but as the earnest invitation of a loving Savior. Jesus truly knows what is best for us, what is best for our souls And he knows that complacency robs us of the fullness of that joy. And we're going to see how that works out. So if you are able, I would invite you to stand as I read this letter from Revelation chapter 3. The words will be on the screen behind me. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have Still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church." City Church, it's the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Jesus begins by describing himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars in his hand. And we've already seen that these seven stars are a representation of all of the churches that he is writing to, of these seven churches that are, have letters written to them at the beginning of the book of Revelation. But the other part of that phrase, that, that Jesus holds the seven spirits of God, is a little bit more difficult to understand. Over the past 2,000 years, different people have come up with different ideas for what they think this means, and, and some of them are really far out there. But at the end of the day, as we read this and reflect back on Revelation chapter 1, it seems that Jesus is using this to show that he and the Holy Spirit 
are one. In the Bible, seven is the number of fullness. Take seven days to fill up a week. And in the same way, Jesus says to the church at Sardis, I am sovereign and in control because I hold the fate of these churches in my hand. But not only am I in control, but I am present among you through the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows everything that has happened in your life and mine. He knows everything that will happen, but not in a cold and distant way, not in the way of somebody who just watches from afar, but in that of an intimate friend who is present in every way. And Jesus begins this letter by showing that he is in control and he is present. Normally, at this point, as we've looked at these letters that all kind of follow the same pattern, this is the spot where Jesus would say something nice. He would turn his attention to the things that the church is doing well. But as you heard in this letter to the church at Sardis, there's nothing like that there. Just like in all the other letters, he says, I know your works, but unlike all the other letters, he doesn't have anything good to say about their works. He says that they have a reputation for being alive when they are, in fact, dead. They're living off of their past reputation, which is something that would have struck the people who heard this letter. Uh, because for most of us, the church at Sardis is not a town, and the town of Sardis is not one that we have ever heard of before. Outside of the Bible, um, I don't think I've ever seen it mentioned anywhere. And yet, of these seven cities, historically, Sardis was the most significant leading up to this time. The city of Sardis was situated on top of a plateau where on three sides of the city, there were rock cliff faces that were so steep, they were barely climbable, and they made the city of Sardis a sort of fortress that no one could take over. And so because of this, it became the capital of Asia Minor, where why don't you put your capital at the place that's hardest for it to get conquered? And it had been an incredibly great city in ancient times. In fact, if you wanted to say something was impossible in the ancient Near East, you would say that it was like conquering Sardis. Here's the problem. Sardis was conquered twice. <laughs> two times. The impenetrable city was conquered on two separate occasions. And to make matters worse, on both of the times that this city was conquered, it was done in the exact same way. They were so confident and complacent that they would often not post guards on the three sides of the city that had the cliff faces. And so on two different occasions, once with the Syrians, once with the Persians, a small group of soldiers scaled the cliff face outside of the city and walked in untouched, unalarmed, and took over the city from the inside. And so because of the complacency that the kings of Sardis had shown, it fell from its former glory. It went from being a capital city to being a has-been city. In fact, when Rome was picking the capital for this region as they began to expand in their territory, Sardis didn't even make the short list. It had been great, but didn't have much going on anymore. And that was the same thing that was true of the church in the city. It had a reputation for being alive. It had a past history that it could draft off of, but its current life and heart were in fact 
dead. The work that the church was doing was incomplete. The idea here is that if you and I looked at this church, we might say that the church looked pretty good. Seems fine. And they they used to be healthy. We know all the stories that came out of them from years ago. But in the reality, what Jesus could see was death and slumber. The works of Sardis could pass the, the eye test of you and I, but they couldn't stand up under the scrutiny of God's eyes. And all of this was without the problems that so many of their sister churches had. They didn't, they didn't have persecution like their brothers and sisters in Smyrna had. They didn't have false teachers like the church at Thyatira. The problem that the church at Sardis faced was the slow decline that comes from ease. And that's something we face as well. Look, City Church, I know most of you, um, many of you pretty well, and for many of us, our lives are pretty good. Yeah, we may have some financial troubles sometimes, maybe lonely being the only Christian in our workplace, but at the end of the day, we aren't persecuted in any meaningful way. We are free to practice our religion how we want. The biggest thing that you had to worry about this morning getting to church was probably considering what downtown brunch traffic was going to be like on Mother's Day. It's pretty easy for us to just slide through life, throw in a couple church services here and there, maybe mix in a Bible study once in a while, but ease in our lives is the breeding ground for complacency. And smooth seas never made for strong sailors. But Jesus says that there is something more beautiful, more meaningful than the comfort and security that we often long for, that we chase through our ease. And he is inviting the church at Sardis to wake up. And he's inviting us to that same thing as well. Because when he uses that phrase, wake up, He's referring to the, that attack of the city two times that I've already mentioned. Both times when the city was conquered, it happened at night, and it happened because no one was assigned to guard those cliff walls. This is, a, as Dennis Johnson puts it, a somber warning for a slumbering church. But what Jesus calls us to, what Jesus is inviting them to, is so much more than just a guilt trip. Listen to the things that Jesus says. He says that they should strengthen what remains and is about to die, that they should remember what they have received and heard, and that they should keep it and repent. In all of these commands, Jesus is not telling the complacent church to work harder, to do more things for the kingdom, to give more money to the poor, or even tell more people about Jesus. What he is inviting them, what he's inviting us back to is the very message of Jesus, the gospel itself. Remember, remember what made your heart first melt when you heard the story of Jesus. Remember how you heard of a good God who created a a paradise of a world and made humans as his dignified image bearers. And remember how that world was wrecked and ravaged by our ancestors' choice to disobey that loving God and how that same type of disobedience plays out in our lives and the lives of the world around us and how it corrupts our choices and the systems that we create. But remember that God sent his son to set all of those things right and atone for our sins. When we reflect 
on the story of God's loving redemption of his people, our hearts are naturally drawn back to him. We're, we're willing and, and humbly ready to repent. And when we do, every single time we find a savior there with open arms. Jesus even shows this in the letter. The nicest thing that the, Jesus has to say about this whole church is not everyone. You know, there, there are some people that aren't doing this. That's the best he's got to say. There are still a few people who haven't soiled their garments, which is exactly as vivid of a phrase as you imagine it to be. That's what Jesus thinks of complacency. There are a few that haven't though. And Jesus says that those people will walk with him in white because they are worthy. But let me be crystal clear. This worthiness does not come from any sort of merit. This worthiness comes by holding fast to the gospel. The cure for complacency is remembering and repenting. The story of Jesus is far too beautiful to be shrugged at. And so as with the other letters, Jesus gives a sort of set of consequences, some good and bad things that might come from the situation. If the church at Sardis won't remember, if they won't repent, he is going to come against them like a thief in the night. And while this phrase might ring in our ears because it is a phrase that both Jesus and Paul use to explain the return of Jesus, his second coming, the people of this city of Sardis would have heard it in a slightly different way. Just like Sardis was conquered at night and destroyed, the church at Sardis faces the same face fate if they refuse to repent and remember what Jesus has done. It's somber and serious. And yet we can see something throughout church history that God does this sometimes. There have been churches that have relied on their former glory that became twisted and grotesque versions of themselves. Think about the, the beginnings of the Reformation and the start of the Lutheran church and how uh, the stories are told of Martin Luther and the church there in Germany and the ground zero of the Reformation. And yet a few centuries later, that same Lutheran church was twisted into being a tool of the Nazi regime. Or think about the Church of the Netherlands, which gave us the wonderful theology of Dutch uh, neo-Calvinism, but also gave us the defenders of apartheid in South Africa. This doesn't just happen to large movements of churches. Jesus is serious about this as well in local churches who allow ease to lull them to sleep, who forget the beauty of the gospel. I mean, drive around downtown. There are four churches within a mile of where you are sitting right now, which are slated to be turned into condos in some way, shape, or form. But it's not all bad news. He is serious about this, but he is just as serious about the joy that is to come. Because Jesus hasn't lost hope, even for those who have soiled their garments. They can still walk with him if they remember and repent. Now, when we think of, when we hear the phrase walking in white, we probably have this sort of dour sense of purity, this sort of uh, formal, you know, top button buttoned sense of starchy purity. But that's not the picture that Jesus is painting. When Jesus is talking about walking in white, He's making an allusion to something that every single one of the people who heard this letter would have understood. He's talking about a Roman triumph. 
Whenever a Roman emperor would, would win a big battle or conquer new lands, they would throw a huge party in Rome. And this was one part parade, one part festival, and one part feast, and it was called a triumph. And, and as they, the conquering king would walk through the city, he would walk through the city flanked by the people that were most important to him, who he would all be wearing white. And at the end of the parade, they would read out of a book all of the rewards that would be given to the people who were walking with the king. And then to top it all off, they would finish this whole thing with a great feast. I'm so glad that we're going to sing in just a few minutes that we will feast in the house of Zion because that is exactly where Jesus says we are going. He is marching in triumph already because of the victory that he has won, not by killing his enemies, but by laying down his life and rising triumphant over death, hell, and sin. And he is asking us to remember to repent and to get on our feet and walk with him, his beloved followers on the way to the feast. As I said before, this story is too beautiful to be shrugged at. So let's remember. Let's remember all that he has done for us. Let's turn away from just playing at Christianity, just throwing it in the mix and making it a thing that we do for going through the motions without wonder and awe at the story of Jesus. Let's keep at it as we show love and kindness to those around us, reflecting the love and kindness that we have already been shown. Let's wake up, church. A new day has dawned, and today we continue to keep the feast as we march on. Let's pray.